Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Nick Talbert, a sophomore at the University of Alabama and a member of the AEI Executive Council. I'm excited to share an interview with AEI's Adam White on the upcoming Supreme Court docket, what decisions we might see, as well as what are some of the consequences of recently decided cases. Mr. White is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, as well as the director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School. Mr. White has also testified before a variety of U.S. House and Senate committees, served on the Presidential Commission of the Supreme Court, as well as appeared in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, National Affairs, and the Notre Dame Law Review. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, be sure to give us a five-star rating to help others find the podcast and subscribe to the Campus Exchange so that you'll be the first to know when we release a new episode. With that, here's my conversation with Mr. Adam White. To kick us off, I want to begin with a rather recently decided case regarding the Biden administration's COVID-19 vaccine requirements, case entitled National Federation of Independent Businesses versus OSHA. Could you sort of give us a quick background on the policy and how it moved its way through the courts? And then after that, I'm going to ask a question on the decision itself. Sure. OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, like a lot of federal agencies, it it administers statutes that are written in extremely broad terms. Um, And as the agency's name suggests, OSHA is focused on occupational or workplace harms. So that's often generally things like a pollutant inside the factory. You know, if the factory throws up a lot of dust or or micropollutants, that kind of thing, um, you need to protect your workers against that. Well, as soon as President Biden took office, there was a lot of pressure on him to issue a nationwide vaccine mandate. There's no statute that gives the president just open-ended power to issue a vaccine mandate. And Biden even bristled a little bit at the suggestion that he had this power to just impose a mandate unilaterally. But as the months proceeded and Congress was passing laws, but not laws mandating a vaccine, the administration finally got impatient and they seized upon uh, the OSHA statute. And said, well, this agency has power to mandate vaccines or, you know, daily tests for um, workers. And that includes just about everybody. So they thought that they could leverage that statute and leverage the private employers of this country to, in effect, carry out a nationwide vaccine mandate. Um, It's not a total I'll say it's not a totally frivolous argument. I mean, OSHA's statute, like so many, is written in extremely broad terms. Um, The thing is, though. The courts, especially in recent years, have started to become a little bit more skeptical of just treating statutes as totally malleable, totally open-ended, without any real restraints on the agencies. And we've seen in recent cases leading up to this, the courts saying that in the most consequential issues, the biggest policy, the biggest economic issues, the biggest political issues, we, the courts, are going to think twice before just assuming that Congress has given these agencies a blank check. And that's the issue that came before the court when the vaccine mandate out of OSHA was challenged. On sort of that relationship of power between Congress and the Biden administration for the uh, vaccine mandate, I want to give you a quick quote and then sort of touch on that. So quote from Justice Gorsuch in the concurring opinion, the federal government's power, however, are not general, but limited and divided. Not only must the federal government properly invoke a constitutionally enumerated source of authority to regulate in this area or any other, it must also act consistently with the Constitution's separation of powers. And when it comes to that obligation, the court has established at least one firm rule, quote, we expect Congress to speak clearly if it wished to assign an executive agency decision, quote, a vast economic and political significance. OSHA's mandate fails that doctrinal test. 
What do you make of that opinion? And if, and if I read it correctly, the court isn't saying the OSHA mandate in and of itself is unconstitutional, but it's only unconstitutional as long as Congress has not yet granted the executive branch the power to do so. Yeah, that the way that Gorsuch described it, and it's often called the major questions doctrine. What it means, and this comes from earlier cases as well, is that when an agency discovers new, practically un- unlimited powers in an old statute, or if an agency passes a law, makes a regulation that really pushes the boundaries of federal power and encroaches on the states, the court isn't just going to assume that Congress lightly delegates that kind of power. They're going to want what they call a clear statement. They're going to want to see Congress say very precisely, yes, we're authorizing the agency to push the boundaries of the agency's power and of federal power generally. So it's just a question about statutory interpretation. The court is going to construe a statute more narrowly and just assume that Congress really did want to have limits on the statute unless Congress says otherwise. Now, if Congress actually does say clearly, we're delegating open-ended power to this agency, well, then that becomes a constitutional issue. But this, the case of the most recent OSHA vaccine mandate case, it really was a case about the meaning of a statute, but it's a meaning that you glean from the statute in light of these broader constitutional principles. To move on to sort of a similar case decided at the same time, Missouri v. Biden. In that previous case, the court ruled against the Biden administration's vaccine mandates. But in this case, it granted a stay on a policy that says entities receiving Medicare or Medicaid funding are allowed to insist their employees get vaccinated. What were the primary differences the court saw in these cases that made them, to an outsider, seemingly shift their position on vaccine mandates? Well, it shows how fact-sensitive this doctrine that we've been discussing is. When you turn your attention from the OSHA, sort of all-purpose, all-workplaces context, and you look more specifically at the federal government's regulation of medical facilities, particular medical facilities that receive federal funding, the context is slightly different, right? It makes it more plausible that Congress would authorize an agency, here was Health and Human Services, to impose a vaccine mandate on healthcare workers uh, so that health care facilities would not be a, a, such a vector for transmission of COVID. So while it sort of strains credulity for the Biden administration to say this little agency OSHA has power to more or less impose a nationwide vaccine mandate for all workers, it doesn't take quite the same stretch of imagination to say Congress in the statutory powers it gave to HHS, it's enough to empower HHS to impose the mandate on these particular workers in this particular healthcare context. That's a warning to sort of all sides of these debates. To those who really liked the OSHA vaccine mandate decision, and I count them among myself, the court's other case tells you, don't get too excited, right? We're not, this is not the end all be all. We're not going to necessarily strike down every agency rule on a consequential matter. It really is fact specific. And for the eight, the people who liked the HHS decision and said it was good that the court allowed that vaccine mandate to go through, the OSHA case is a reminder to them that you really got to take seriously the fact that the context in the HHS case was very particular. How do you think the separate rulings will change the way that they outline the powers of these agencies in the future? Do you think they'll make it get more specific so that way they can be less of a chance they get knocked down the courts or more general to broaden the scope and power of the agencies? I'm really glad you asked that because in both the majority opinion, um, which was unsigned, um, but the majority included Chief Justice Roberts and others who might have signed it, and then the separate opinion by Gorsuch, 
Well, those opinions have two audiences, well, more than two audiences, but in particular, Congress and the agencies. And to Congress, they're very clearly saying, if you want agencies to have these powers, go update your statutes. Say it clearly. Um, and that's been a theme all the way back to Justice Scalia in the 80s when he was writing about administrative law. He was always turning things back to Congress and saying, what rules can the court create in interpreting the law that will create the right incentives for Congress to do its own job better? Um, ultimately, that's the goal. The second audience I'd point to is um, the agencies themselves, right? Not just the ones that, that won or lost these cases, but in general, the court's decisions in these cases and in a number of cases leading up to it over the last 20 years, the agencies are increasingly on notice of the fact that they can't be glib when they assert some new, broad, unprecedented power in an old statute. They're really going to have to work hard to convince the public and the court that their assertion of this power isn't unlawful. And frankly, I think the fact that the Biden administration really hasn't issued many landmark rulemakings in its first year, um, you know, there's been the emergency, these emergency rules, but you haven't seen the big climate policy rules or, or other environmental rules or financial regulations and others. I think in part, it's because these agencies got the message and they're preparing as best they can to justify whatever transformative statutory interpretations they're about to announce. I'm not saying that they're going to actually that they're actually going to succeed, that their that their interpretations are going to be justifiable. But I think they've found that they they've had to do more homework in order to to tee up those fights. I want to give you a quick quote from the decision and then sort of get you to elaborate on it. This is Alito dissenting, quote, today's decision will ripple through the administrative agency's future decision making. The executive branch already touches nearly every aspect of Americans' lives. And concluding that CMS has good cause to avoid notice and comment rulemaking, the court shifts the presumption against the compliance and procedural strictures from the unelected agency to the people they regulate. Neither CMS nor the court articulate a limiting principle for why, after unexplained and unjustifiable delay, an agency can regulate first and listen later, then put more than 10 million healthcare workers to the choice of their job or an ever-reversible medical treatment. What does he mean when he says the decision will rip, ripple through the administrative agency? What, what will be the long-term effects of this decision? I know you sort of touched on it with outlining the powers, but yeah. specifically, what was he touching on when he said it ripples through the agencies? Well, I think what he's saying is that the court, by not put, in his opinion, that's from the HHS case, right, where the court approves the HHS vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. He's saying, in effect, we should have decided this case the way we decided the OSHA vaccine mandate case that by not closing the door to this agency action, we are going to encourage other agencies to push the boundaries of their laws, of the, of the statutes that empower them to regulate. And the way that Alito, in that quote you just read, the way that Alito says, ultimately, these decisions are going to cut back either on the, the discretion of the agencies or the freedom of the public. And to the extent that the court allows agencies to push the boundaries of their power, that means the public, in effect, has to worry about treading in a gray area, right? When an agency isn't bound by clear, strong limits, then that zone of discretion becomes has a, has a chilling effect on individual liberty. People have to kind of wonder how far the agencies are going to push. I mean, it's characteristic of our entire administrative state. It's kind of, I think we, we've lived in it now. We all live in it. And we forget how really extraordinary it is that... Every four or eight years, we get a new president, and so many policies just change with the snap of a finger. 
often from night to day or day to night, um, the whole legal world rearranges itself around a single presidential election and the change of administrations. And at the same time, the laws that are made in that four or eight year period, they aren't written in stone, right? We all know, well, maybe the next administration will change it. So it, cre- it really undermines the rule of law and our federal government's capacity for steady administration across administrations. When the laws are so malleable, the agency's discretion is so ever-present, and the public's individual liberty is so chilled. To get away from cases already been decided in the court to one that was recently argued, but the decision is still pending, the case being uh, Shertafel v. Boston. This case regards one of three flagpoles um, out front of the Boston City Hall in Boston, Massachusetts, and the rights to use it. To be put simply, why is a case regarding a singular flagpole being brought before the Supreme Court. What, what's the story of the case? Why does it matter? Why should we? Why should we look at this case? Well, every landmark Supreme Court case, and even the, like the cases that aren't quite landmarks, it's an amazing thing about our system. You get these broad statements of constitutional principle out of individual disputes, whether it's a dispute over a flagpole or a Ten Commandments statute outside of a courthouse, or a you know, a farmer who wants to develop his land, but he's told by a federal agency that it might be a wetland, right? All these, or I mean, how many, you know, landmark free speech cases, including the, one of the most famous ones of all from my home state of Iowa, Tinker versus Des Moines about student free speech rights. And that Supreme Court case began with a dispute between a couple of students and their, their high school principal or high school teacher. So the question in, in this case is, when the when the the government the state or local government has a flagpole, and in addition to putting up you know their own government flag, they might allow on special occasions the hoisting of other flags of their organizations. Is that then sort of a public forum where everybody has a right to run their flag up their government's flagpole, um, or is this the government's own speech where they're saying we endorse the message that's conveyed by this by this flag? I have to admit I haven't followed the clay case closely enough to have an opinion on it yet. And I can see the arguments both ways. I mean, I I can, on the one hand, say, well, just because the state government puts up, you know, the, again, I'm from Iowa, say the state government puts up like the Iowa, the the Iowa Corn Growers Association flag or something to celebrate Iowa agriculture, right? Does that mean that Iowa then is like duty bound to put up every single flag from every single individual's message within the state? That surely can't be the case. On the other hand, if the if if when a state is you know putting up the flags of other say religious groups, and if they you know refuse to put up the same flag for my own religious affiliation, I'm I'm a Catholic, I'm a Christian. Um, well, then I'd be pretty bothered by the by the court, the, the government in effect discriminating against my religion. So I I haven't followed the case closely enough, and I'm very keen to see um, what the court actually does with it. Well, sort of going on that saying you haven't followed the case, I want to sort of give you just an idea of the flag raisings and sort of the events around the case. So with this flagpole, there's been over 284 flag raisings over this past 12 year period, with this Christian flag being the only one being denied um, approval to use the flagpole. So some obviously would say the state is not doing this because out of fear that if you look at a flagpole and it has the Christian flag on it, you'll automatically assume that the Boston city is endorsing Christianity, violating separation of church and state. How do you sort of see that that there are a 12-year period, there has been nearly 300 flags, none denied, with this one being the first, and sort of you know pair that with the idea that if a bystander sees that flagpole, is that the bystander's fault 
for assuming that there's loss of separation church and state and not knowing that there is a rental opportunity? Or is that the state's fault for not explicitly making it clear enough that this is not an endorsement, but rather just an open forum? Well, obviously, the numbers in recent history are, I mean, I knew enough about the case to know that, which is why I sort of teed up my example that way. I mean, obviously, it's troubling facts. The way that the government has defended its position here, it's amazing to me. It's almost as though they're saying, don't take our speech too seriously, right? That that they they are putting these other flags up, but they're not endorsing. Um, they're not endorsing the message, but they're worried that if they would put a Christian flag up, then people would assume that they are endorsing the message of Christianity. I mean, it's a strange way to say, well, we're putting these things up. We don't, we mean it, but we don't mean it too much. And we don't want to, you know, give a forum to a majority group in our state because then it might look like we side with the majority. I just think that hopefully, however this case is decided, it's a wake up call for local governments to be much more transparent and clear about what and thoughtful about what exactly they are doing here. Would the statement by the city saying that they'll take down the flagpole if the other organization wins influence the case in any way? No, I don't think so, because even though each case comes out of a individual dispute, the justices know that they have to decide a case on broader principles in a way that will inform the actions of all the other governments. This has happened in other cases. Sometimes, you know, a government will put up like roadside cross memorials or a, or a large cross memorial for people who have died on the highways or police who have died in duty or, or soldiers who have died in duty. And when the Supreme Court hears those cases, there's often sort of questions about what will happen to the, the cross memorial if the government loses. And sometimes they're, they're taken down or, or sent off to private hands. So I want to move on to one of the most important gun rights cases since D.C. versus Heller, in my opinion. This case, New York State Rifle versus Bruin, challenging New York's law requiring citizens to prove to the licensing authority that they have, quote, proper calls to conceal carry as unconstitutional. While the court has not yet released a decision on the case, if you look at some of their comments towards the New York Solicitor General, it certainly seems that they're set on a particular decision, or at least in my opinion, they are. At one point, Roberts, in reference to the law requiring proper calls even in rural areas, asked the Solicitor General, quote, how many muggings take place in a forest, with Kavanaugh later questioning the high bar necessary to receive the permit, asking of the Solicitor General, quote, why isn't it good enough to just say I live in a violent area? How do you think the court will rule on this? On this? How do you think the court will rule on this case? And what would be some of the implications on a state level if the law gets turned over? Well, this case was known primarily as a Second Amendment case, right? A case about gun rights. But as the way you just teed it up makes clear, there's also this case has a lot in common with the OSHA, OSHA vaccine mandate case and other cases where it's not just that the government is burdening individual liberty. And there is some there's interesting questions about how much regulation a state could impose on gun possession or gun ownership without you know overstepping their bounds of the Second Amendment. But what's particularly troubling to the justices, it seems in this case, is that New York has created this administrative, this licensing apparatus um, that's kind of a black box. And it doesn't, a lot goes into it. A lot of applications go into it. Not many licenses come out. And it's not clear exactly how you could prove that you're entitled to a license. I, I'm blanking on the statutory text right now, but it gives huge discretion to the licensing authority and sort of puts the burden of proof on the applicant, applicant to convince the permitting authority that you're entitled to this license. So I think ultimately my guess is the court will rule against New York. And, and New York actually won an earlier iteration of the case where the court decided it was premature to even hear the case. But now that I have heard the case, I think they'll decide on the merits. I think you'll get an even if you get a majority of the justices ruling against New York, you could get an interesting 
sort of disagreement among some of the conservative justices over the precise grounds. Some of the justices might say that any kind of licensing regime like this goes overboard for the Second Amendment, uh, goes overboard against the Second Amendment. I could see Roberts and others saying, listen, maybe in theory you can have a licensing regime somewhat like this, um, but this particular licensing regime is so flawed with so much discretion that it's just untenable. Frankly, Chief Justice Roberts, who's most often thought of as the justice who saved um, Obamacare, he has actually been one of the most vocal critics on the court of giving agencies too much discretion. Um, in the in the Obamacare case, he was deferring to Congress and saying it's okay for Congress to assert this power. Um, but when it comes to agencies, he's been very, very critical of agencies wielding too broad of a power or wielding it in erratic or opaque ways. And this feels like a lot, a lot like one of those cases. Still talking about New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. If this law is shot down, how do you think the court would handle the fear that many people have of guns in highly populated public spaces, such as Yankee Games, Times Square, the New York subway, places like that? How would they handle sort of that within their decision? For years now, as the Supreme Court circled back to the Second Amendment, you know, a part of the Constitution which got virtually no attention from the Supreme Court for 200 years, it's always the majority, even when upholding Second Amendment rights, has always gone out of its way to say that these aren't unlimited. And there are proper role for government to limit gun possession or gun use. The famous Heller case where Justice Scalia wrote the opinion upholding the individual right to keep and bear arms, he sketched out a number of areas where either a particular class of person could be uh, denied access to weapons, like, like say, for example, felons or, or the mentally ill. And also, you could have limits based on the class of weapon, right? Like the famous example would be, you know, you're, you have a right to keep and bear arms. That doesn't mean you could own like a, a bazooka or a suitcase nuke or something like that. And so my guess is that the justices will, will would, would write a similar opinion in this case. And especially if the majority of justices gather around an opinion that really focuses on the problems of this administrative apparatus, right, and says that the state failed provide clear standards and a transparent me mechanism for administering the laws, that will put states and local governments on notice that they need to update their laws and become much clearer about what they're denying. And that's a good thing, not just because of the clarity of the law, but it also allows voters to, to better understand what exactly it is that their, their government officials are allowing and prohibiting. So I think it would help to open up a conversation about um, what is actually effective gun policy. I mentioned a moment ago that New York avoided the court deciding that case by taking down its original gun law, which seemed to really push constitutional limits and to take it down and pass a different one, raising like an interesting question. I think it was Justice Alito who might have asked it at oral argument. He asked the lawyers, has New York become less safe because of this temporary change in the gun laws? Are you saying that you actually put the, the public at risk? And New York wasn't going to admit that. But on the other hand, they didn't want to admit that, that these regulations didn't have any effect. And so it really is forcing the government to be clear in how they justify what they're doing. We saw something very similar, by the way, during the Trump years. The case where President Trump's Department of Commerce wanted to add a citizenship question to the census, the court struck it down. They didn't say the government was prohibited from adding that question, but they said the government's explanation, the agency's explanation for why you needed that, the explanation itself looked like it was being sort of 
facially dishonest about what it was really trying to accomplish here. Um, in other cases, like when when President Trump's Department of Homeland Security wanted to change Obama's immigration non-enforcement policy. The court said, you haven't done enough here to to explain why this, this policy change is justified. My guess is the court's instinct under Roberts to demand more and more justification from agencies is going to be the kind of thing they demand of New York here. Do you think it'd be the case that if New York came back after a ruling, supposing that their law got struck down, they clarified the law more, they went more into depth exactly what they meant, but the law still had the same consequences. Do you think the court would uphold that law if it did go into more depth and had more breadth to it? Or is it still, especially with this specific law, a violation of the Second Amendment? Well, if by same con- consequences, you mean virtually nobody could get a license for a handgun, my guess is that would still push the constitutional limits of what the Second Amendment allows. And I think that law would probably face some real scrutiny. If instead they come up with a new permitting regime and you do get people having a meaningful opportunity, even if it's, say, just 20 percent of applicants end up showing that they're entitled to a handgun license under this permitting regime, that might pass muster. It's hard to say. I mean, at that point, you really are asking the judges to make a difficult judgment call and Mm -hmm. probably one for which the, the justices might be a little deferential to regulators if they're actually justifying why that particular level of restriction is is necessary. To move on to one of the biggest cases the Supreme Court has taken in a long time, and I think the one that's probably been in the news the most, the the two challenges to the Texas abortion bans, U.S. v. Texas, and then Whole Women's Health v. Jackson, as well as the challenge to Mississippi's abortion ban, Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization. The Texas law, effective September 1st, 2021, entitled SB8, restricted abortions following the finding of a heartbeat, and the Mississippi bill, the, quote, Gestational Age Act, banned almost all abortions after 15 weeks gestational age. Whole Woman's Health v. Jackson has already been settled with the court ruling that Texas abortions may go into effect, as well as the U.S. v. Texas, with the court deciding that the pre-enforcement challenge to Texas's SB8 may proceed past the motion to dismiss stage. That leaves only Mississippi's Gestational Age Act to be decided on. Do you think that the previous pro-life favorable decisions from the court could be foreshadowing for a big decision in the upcoming Mississippi case? Well, the way you teed up the cases, I think it really does make clear the fact that the Texas litigation was really about process. Who has the right, who, if anybody has a right, to file a challenge against the state law, blocking this the, the state regulations of abortion, when the state itself hadn't tried to enforce those regulations against anybody. That was a tricky procedural and jurisdictional question. And frankly, even after the court's decision, it's still bouncing around in the lower federal courts and in the, now I think in the state Supreme Court. And so we don't have the final word yet really on what the Supreme Court's decision means. And that was sort of built into the way they wrote the law, correct? Yeah, that was the whole point of it. And frankly, I wasn't a fan of it. I mean, I'm very, very, very pro-life. But there was something very worryingly passive aggressive about that enforcement regime, where instead of the state actually enforcing its own laws, it just told the public that certain conduct in one of these abortions was prohibited and that they would be enforced through lawsuits brought by private individuals. My problems with the law were that, one, it it really did reduce the government's own accountability for its law, and two, it encouraged a regime where people had a financial incentive to snoop into each other's lives. And again, speaking as somebody who's very, very against abortion, and I hope to see it outlawed as much as possible in America, 
I had real, real worries about the Texas statute and what it might inspire in other statute in other states, including Democratic controlled states, where you try a passive aggressive enforcement mechanism that would chill people's exercise of, of their claimed rights. Um, so the Mississippi case is very different. There really is just the question that this now 50 year debate over the constitutionality of state restrictions on abortion. Oral argument was very, very interesting. I still tend to think that the Supreme Court is going to significantly pare back the precedents that allow very, very broad access to abortion, you know, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The interesting question is how far the court will go. Some people say that they expect the court to declare that there is simply no constitutional right to abortion in any circumstances. And it's possible the court could announce that. The thing is, as I said before, each of these cases arrives as a very specific dispute, right? And the court, while it announces broad rules, the rules really are rooted in the dispute at hand. And so when I wonder how far the court will go, for me, the question is, how far do they have to go to decide this case? They can uphold the Mississippi statute. 15 weeks 15 gestational weeks, 15 age. Weeks. Yeah. So it's it's a little before what we would call viability, the viability of the, of the fetus of the unborn child outside of the womb. So under existing precedent, the state law would be unconstitutional. But if the court upholds the state law, will they just say, listen, we're, we're allowing a regulation of abortion as early as 15 weeks? Or will they say as early as five weeks? Um, what about you know, the classic questions about where the life of the mother is really at risk? They don't need to preemptively declare that there's not even a right to abortion in those contexts. And so I'm curious to see how exactly they phrase their opinion, what it means for those like truly extraordinary cases and what cases it might leave yet to be decided in future litigation. If the case is decided in Mississippi's favor and goes to the extent that many people want in effectively overturning Roe v. Wade, I think a majority of Americans believe that will effectively outlaw abortion within the United States. Can you explain why that might not be quite the case? That's more of a state sort of issue if Roe is overturned? Yeah. And when you say Roe is overturned, honestly, we do a whole podcast over what that means, right? What did Roe mean? What does it mean to overturn Roe? If you cut back some of the abortion right, is that overturning Roe? Anyway, so we'll just bracket all of that. That's a podcast in and of itself. But you're right. There is this fundamental misunderstanding about abortion policy in America. The Supreme Court overturning Roe saying even if they went all in and said there's no constitutional right to abortion, that doesn't mean that states couldn't enact their own abortion rights. It doesn't mean that state constitutions might not be construed by the Supreme state Supreme Courts as containing abortion rights. It really would return these things to the states. Now, there are a number of conservative um, philosophers and legal scholars who actually go so far as to argue the U.S. Constitution itself prohibits abortion by denying unborn children their right to life with due process. And so, that's a, a follow-up question. But no, the, the court's decision here, no matter how far it goes, it's going to first and foremost create new discussions within the states. And that's a healthy thing. I mean, we have a federal system so that not everything is decided at the federal level and that the states do have some flexibility, even on issues where there is you know, a, a clear constitutional right, like the Second Amendment. The states still have a little flexibility. And on cases where the court says, no, there isn't a constitutional right to abortion, well, then it just goes back to the states for them to make their laws and then update those laws over time, depending on the people's changing opinions of these things. 
If we did see the overturning of Roe v. Wade, like you said, that does mean a lot. But just in general terms, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, would we see a case come before the Supreme Court in the near future ruling on what you were just talking about? The conservative thought with some philosophers that a right to life in the Constitution also applies to children within the womb. Would we see a case come to Supreme Court on that? Maybe, um, but it really would depend on who would have standing to litigate it, right? Just with the, the Texas case, who has standing to file a pre-enforcement challenge against Texas saying that your law is unconstitutional? Uh, who would have the who would have the, the the standing, it's called, to file a constitutional lawsuit asserting the right of the unborn child in the womb? I just don't know. Um, it's one of the reasons why I haven't delved too far into those debates yet, because we just don't know what the law is going to be with respect to Roe or Casey six months from now. And once we decide, once we hear that case and we see what's left over, it'll be interesting to see how the legal scholars, the politicians, the philosophers and others really start to grapple their way to the legal issues of the of the post row era. Mm-hmm. Now to one of the more recently accepted cases by the court. As of just a couple of days ago, Monday, January 24th, the Supreme Court announced it would take up two cases challenging affirmative action in college admissions. This case regarding two separate lawsuits, one against Harvard and the other one against USC claimed that while race-based admissions were supposedly an advantage to typically discriminate against minorities in the U.S., what they ended up doing was effectively causing discrimination specifically against Asian students. So far, the lower courts have ruled that Harvard and USC limited the role in applications of race in applications, whereas to only satisfy the interests of diversity, not enough to cause discrimination. Now, this case was crafted from the beginning by legal strategist Edward Blum from the beginning to challenge this uh, president of affirmative action. Blum, of course, previously being known for formulating the lawsuit that led to Shelby County v. Holder. With all that being said, we've already seen Justice Thomas and Grutter v. Bollinger come out strongly against racial-based admissions, as well as Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote in 2006, quote, it's a sordid business, this divvying up by race. So you not only have a case designed to overturn affirmative action, but you also have a 6-3 majority conservative court with a history of opposition to race-based laws. To be blunt, is there a way that affirmative action does not get turned over in this case? And if not, then how so? And what would the future of college admissions look like? Anytime I make a concrete prediction, I have to prepare myself to be wrong. That said, I've long thought that the Harvard case would be the case that results in that affirmative action is illegal. Now, there's two cases, as you mentioned. There's Harvard, which is a private university, and North Carolina, which is a state university. In the Harvard case, the issue isn't so much does the Constitution prohibit race-based affirmative action, race-based admissions of the school. It's a statutory case. It's The question is, does the Civil Rights Act prohibit it? So it's not just what's one sense of the Constitution. Here we have what Congress actually said, right? When Congress said there's, for these, these higher ed um, institutions, you know, you cannot discriminate on the basis of race. That, I think, is a pretty cut and dry issue. And in fact, when Justice Gorsuch surprised a lot of people a few years ago by declaring that the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity because it was he saw it as discrimination on the basis of sex. There's any number of criticisms you can have of that of that opinion. But one of the interesting things I thought was it signaled a very strict reading of the Civil Rights Act that would come back to haunt advocates for race-based university admissions. And so I do think we'll see that play out in the Harvard case. The North Carolina case, you have the constitutional issue. States can't, states have to provide people the equal protection of laws. States' abilities to discriminate on the basis of race are rightly extremely limited 
Right. Um, and the question is whether UNC's admissions policy um, goes over that line. I think it does. I think UNC's admissions policy will also be declared unconstitutional. The Harvard case, by the way, the factual record is so bad for the school. Some of the documents that came out of the admissions offices where they say really bluntly prejudiced things about Asian American or Asian students. It was just so terrible. The the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit managed to whitewash that. And I don't think they can do it here. I think the Supreme Court is going to look very clearly at not just the meaning of the Civil Rights Act, but also the gravity of, of what these admissions policies actually entail when you're discriminating against individual students. We'll say on that discrimination against Asian students, uh, as far as Harvard goes, there was also, and I won't cite the exact percentage because I'm not sure of it, so I don't want to cite anything wrong, but going by Harvard's own outline of what type of students to admit, uh, someone went through it and it was a massive majority of Harvard would have been made up of Asian students if they had not discriminated against them. So I think I think you're right. That'll really play against them. But would a ruling against affirmative action in this, against affirmative action in college admissions mean for corporations or government organizations? Obviously, this case directly deals with colleges, but would it have any influence on race-based admissions and, like I said, private companies or the government organizations? Hard to say. I mean, it is a different part of the Civil Rights Act, and I'd have to go back and look at what that title exactly says. My guess is it would be a very similar outcome. But frankly, as far as I can tell, private companies haven't been as heavy-handed as the universities. And, you know, especially it's one thing to say that private companies should have a little bit of discretion in who they hire. It's another thing to say state universities, which are state government, should be able to discriminate on the basis of race. I do think they're somewhat different. I wouldn't say that the Supreme Court's decision in these cases would have like direct and immense consequences for private sector hiring, but it certainly would require these companies to think hard about their practices and and ensure that they are staying on the right side of federal anti-discrimination law. With seemingly a big reason of Breyer's retirement being this more liberal activism and almost lobbying, how have you seen that sort of affect the court? It seems to be a more prominent thing coming up, obviously, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it was a big part of it. Um, so how do you see that sort of influence in the court in future in the coming years? Do you think it's helping the courts that way, just as maybe you know a proper time to retire, they can get out and help their side of the court? Or should they just wait? And as we've seen, some justices do stay in the court until they pass away. I actually don't think that the activism affected Justice Breyer's decision. I think Justice Breyer just looked at this and said, I've been on the court for nearly three decades. Uh, this summer is probably my last chance to leave with a like-minded successor getting nominated and confirmed. I just I've been expecting for a long time that that Justice Breyer would retire this summer one way or another once we saw how close the Senate was going to be. The political campaign against him has been really gross. They did it some to Justice Ginsburg before she passed. And then when she did, you know, they wanted her to retire during the Obama years and she didn't. And then when she died during the Trump years, I think everybody looked at Justice Everybody on the left looked at Justice Breyer and said, you need to go at the first opportune moment. It's really gross. As I was leaving the court commission, I did sort of express worries about the timing of judicial retirements. Republican appointed justices and Democratic appointed justices alike have often done it. This is this is very, very, a very, very familiar trend. And I don't think they do it for crass partisan reasons. I think they do it because they would like to see themselves replaced by a like-minded successor. And the way that the parties have polarized around the meaning of the Constitution and the court's role, 
it just means that there's going to be more partisan alignment. I still think it's a really, this is going to, this is going to sound really naive, I, but I still think it's a bad thing. And I wish that justices wouldn't necessarily stay on the court until they die. But I, I wish that it were possible for justices to retire on a different clock, to choose to go out even without necessarily liking their successor. At the end of the day, things are so polarized that that might almost be impossible. Um, but this is all the fault of the court itself for politicizing it so much on issues like abortion and other other issues. The court itself turned judicial appointments into such an ugly issue. Justice Scalia himself said this in his dissent in one of the big abortion cases, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. He said it's it's decisions like this that turn the the appointments process into such partisan warfare. And the only way we're going to get out of this, we got to back up the truck and get out of this mess that the court itself drove into. Hopefully, by the time that you're up for a judicial nomination or something, we'll be in an era when the courts have been depoliticized, but that has to start with the court itself and not with the politics around the court. One last touch on the retirement. In respect to the open position, as you touched on earlier, Biden pledged to fill the position with an African-American woman. Do you see the pledging of certain races or sexes on the court becoming more prevalent in maybe presidential administrations or races? And if so, what would that mean for the future of the court? I've been very worried about pre-commitments. We've seen litmus tests. You know, I will appoint a a pro-life justice or something like that. Then it sort of grew into the, the famous or infamous Trump lists where he created like lists of justices that he would appoint. I liked the judges on those lists. I didn't quite like the fact that such lists exist. I think it creates a weird partisan dynamic among judges, or at least it could create that dynamic. With pre-committing to certain demographic groups, Biden wasn't the first. President Reagan pre-committed to appointing the first woman to the Supreme Court. As I said in an interview with a reporter uh, the day before we were interviewing, we were recording this podcast, I said the problem with the with Biden's pledge to appoint a black woman is that he was therefore pledging not to appoint an Asian woman or an Asian man or, or any other demographic group. And I just get really, really worried about those kinds of, of, of pledges. Now, I would say I'm not against diversity on the court, whether it's racial diversity, diversity of experience, geographic diversity. I actually do think those are all good things. And if a president were to say, give me the best candidates, and when I get those candidates, I might give the benefit of you know the tiebreaker to certain kinds of diversity, I actually, I think that would be okay and maybe even a good thing. But what I don't like is when you start by pre-committing in like strictly race, racial terms, that takes on a very different valence. I don't like saying, let's narrow ourselves to a particular racial or, or gender group and then pick the best justice among that. I would rather they look through the other end of the telescope and say, give me the best nominees, and then I'll try to prioritize diversity on the bench. I think that's, that's okay, and I wish President Biden would have done it that way. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today, Mr. White. I know you're crazy busy, so it was great to have you for this time. It was great to hear from you, sort of get your views on the cases. I look forward to talking with you again. Yeah, likewise. I'm so glad to be here. And I'm so grateful that this podcast itself exists. It's a it's a good one. And, and I'm grateful for all the work that you guys do on it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, make sure to give us a five star rating and subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click the link in the show notes. 
Lastly, make sure to follow us at AEI for students on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to learn more about upcoming programs for students.